Hi, and welcome to this installment of our New Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia University's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Old Dominion professor in the humanities Bruce Robbins' book, The Beneficiary. First, I'll bring you Bruce's comments about his book from the panel, where he also read aloud a section of his book. Um, so, Sarah, thanks for that very, very uh, generous introduction, and thanks to the panelists for showing up. Thank you for showing up. Um, I actually want to thank, uh, well, Emily and Eileen for organizing this, and I want to thank uh, Duke University Press, which is not here represented, for letting me publish a book without a colon or a subtitle, (laughs) which is no doubt the only time I will ever do this in my life. Um, I had given it to them with a subtitle and a colon, colon and a subtitle, uh, which was Cosmopolitanism from the Viewpoint of Inequality. Um, And I thought of it as a sequel to the previous book also published from Duke, which is Cosmopolitanism from the Viewpoint of Violence. And I was sort of trying to get, uh, I guess, a test applied to the concept of cosmopolitanism, which it seems to me has gotten soft and needs testing. So first, a violence test. You know, do you count as cosmopolitan if you're not doing something about, let's say, the violence that's going on in your name um, in one way or another? Or, you know, does it count as cosmopolitanism if you're not paying attention to something like global economic inequality. So trying to get that stuff on the agenda. Um, You will have noticed it's not on the agenda. And uh, if there were a prize for bad political timing, I think this book would be a good candidate for that prize. You will have noticed there was an election last November, about a year ago. And since that time, (laughs) No reaction at all to that. Anyway, um, since that time, many of us have been told that really we should be thinking much more about making contact with those Trump supporters who see themselves as victims of globalization and voted for Trump for exactly that reason. I don't think anyone is offering prizes for anyone who would, like me, then tell them, I know you have a grievance, it's a real grievance, but actually you're a beneficiary of globalization. Um, So this is just what a dumb idea it is to publish a book like this at this time. Now I'll read from it. (laughs) I I hope this is not more than 10 minutes. I did some timing, but one tends to get carried away. If you're wondering about how people in the prosperous West began to feel uncomfortable about their position of disparity vis-a-vis the less prosperous rest... One obvious place to look is the history of humanitarianism. This book proposes a revisionist view of that history. Rather than focusing on the disparity itself with its appeal to empathy and abstract fairness, but also perhaps to national or civilizational pride, the book focuses on a somewhat more rarefied feeling, the feeling that your fate is causally linked, however obscurely, with the fates of distant and sometimes suffering others. The idea that I am causally responsible for someone's suffering, 
appeals to something in me that is stronger than fairness or empathy. Causal responsibility is, of course, more than George Kennan. I start out this introduction talking about him. More than George Kennan himself acknowledges, it's also more than humanitarianism can afford to coax out of its donor base. It dictates the telling of a different story, though traces of that story can be detected in some of the humanitarianism of humanitarianism's best-known texts. Consider what may be the most discussed passage in what would soon coalesce into a humanitarian canon, the Chinese earthquake in Adam Smith's The Theory of Moral Sentiments. I don't know if everybody has encountered this, but some of you surely have. After hearing news of the death of hundreds of thousands in a terrible earthquake in China, a European gentleman of refined feeling would no doubt feel, this is not a quote, although I'm making it sound like one, would no doubt feel sympathy and reflect profoundly, but Adam Smith notoriously predicted, would also sleep as soundly that night as if he had heard no news at all. The same person would not sleep a wink, however, if told he would lose his own little finger the next day. Smith's example seems irrefutable. Which of us is not fundamentally self-interested or selfish in the sense Smith so memorably isolates? There is much and ever-increasing insomnia in the world, but the sufferings of distant others are probably not among its primary causes. Against self-love, Smith and the emergent humanitarianism of the period appealed to a disinterested sense of common humanity. But a disinterested sense of common humanity was not the only force pushing it pushing in the other direction. Even during Smith's lifetime, when the news of an earthquake in China would have taken months to get to Europe, and it was thus impossible to imagine anyone but fellow Chinese helping Chinese earthquake victims in distress, the Europeans Smith was addressing were not, were not in fact disinterested spectators of suffering in China. They were causally connected to China. Smith was a drinker of tea. His habit of drinking tea in Scotland did not initially depend on the coerced importation of opium by Britain into China, where the tea was grown, but during his lifetime, the imports and the coercion were steadily growing. The social consequences of the opium dumping were comparable to an earthquake. Elsewhere, Smith used the analogy of the earthquake to describe British colonial policy in Asia, that is, its effects. In this sense, Smith's supposedly impartial spectator could be considered an interested party. He was a beneficiary of the suffering he thought he was merely observing from afar. This is a kind of perception that has become familiar, often in post-colonial settings. Take, for example, a brief passage in Jamaica Kincaid's novel, Lucy, in which Lucy is taken to see, I'm quoting, an old mansion in ruins, formerly the home of a man who had made a great deal of money in the part of the world that I was from, in the sugar industry. I did not know this man, but if he hadn't been already dead, I would have wished him so. The sentence suggests that the house came from the profits of the sugar industry, that the profits of the sugar industry came from slavery, and that we must learn to see slavery, at least sometimes, 
when we look at houses, impolite as that may seem. One might think such moments were impossible until very recently. As the book shows, they have a long and interesting history. The material connections lurking behind humanitarian reflections were not invisible to Adam Smith's 18th century. This was the era when abolitionism arose and began its slow march toward victory. Abolitionists made use of campaigns for the boycott of sugar from plantations that exploited slave labor. The iconic argument was that when you sweetened your tea, you were doing so with the blood of the slaves who cultivated the sugar cane. Thus, every cup of tea became a carrier of potential political awareness. The genre is, of course, still flourishing, and not just in campaigns against sweatshop labor. I quote, the average American is responsible through his, her greenhouse gas emissions for the suffering and or deaths of one or two future people. The century in which humanitarianism emerged also bristled with consciousness of how commodities newly enjoyed at home depended on coercion, violence, or mere unpleasantness elsewhere. Interesting as the detached, impartial spectator may be, equally interesting, surely, is the fact that it was born, along with its opposite number, the beneficiary. Both have a history, but only one of those histories is well known. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit, and I hope uh, not presume too much on your patience by reading just another, another page. I didn't ask your permission. I'm just doing it. Uh, <laughs> Who is a beneficiary? You are, probably. If you had not benefited from some ambitious higher education, it seems unlikely that you would be dipping into a book with so earnest and unpromising a title as this one. <laughs> the education that has prepared you to read this paragraph, listen to it, may not guarantee much in terms of job opportunities, income, or security, but on the global scale, the scale of global economic statistics, it makes you one of the privileged. I will not ask any intrusive questions about where the money for your education came from. There are rules of politeness surrounding questions about income. But I will assume that from the perspective of the planet as a whole, such an education remains a scarce commodity and a rare privilege. You are both well-intentioned, I imagine, and I would guess relatively well-informed. You've heard, for example, about the suicides at Foxconn, and perhaps also about the anti-suicide nets that were subsequently installed. You were glad to find out that after the rash of suicides and suicide attempts, wages were raised, at least somewhat. But you have an uneasy sense that the silicon chips inside all your suddenly indispensable devices are still manufactured in circumstances so harsh and toxic that for the workers who make them, suicide does not seem an unreasonable option. As a person of goodwill, you are not pleased to find yourself stuck in this self-conscious dependency on bad working conditions. When you say to yourself or to others that our beautiful iPhones and iPads wouldn't exist without low-paid and overworked Chinese workers, you are speaking the discourse of the beneficiary. In its pure form, the discourse of the beneficiary refers to something between a recognition of global economic injustice and a denunciation of global economic injustice. It does so in a range of tonalities, not all of them political, 
some perhaps more rueful than indignant, that share two characteristics. One, they are addressed to beneficiaries of that injustice, not to its victims. And two, they're spoken by a fellow beneficiary. Each of these defining elements escapes from direct political speech as we usually recognize it and indeed seems to frustrate political engagement. Imagine trying to organize a political movement or demonstration by pointing out an injustice and then appealing not to its victims, but to those who benefit from that injustice. The discourse of the beneficiary excludes an immense number of possible statements that here and now might seem politically more urgent and more valuable. And yet it would be hard to say that the statements it enables are politically valueless. It would not be wasted breath if, say, a Northern European were to repeat in Northern Europe what Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras said shortly before his election in 2015. The deficits of the South are at the same time the surpluses of the North. This is an example of the discourse of the beneficiary. If enough people were to say such things, the result could be a lifting of austerity policies that have damaged and destroyed a statistically significant number of lives. It's not an uncommon way of speaking, but to my knowledge, it has never been named or analyzed. So that's enough. Now, we'll hear the comments Amanda Claybaugh, Samuel Zamuri Jr., and Doris Zamuri Stone, Radcliffe Professor of English and Harvard College Professor at Harvard University, made about Bruce's book at the panel. Bruce describes this book as being the companion piece to his earlier book on cosmopolitanism and violence. But I read it as being something else as well, as being a synthesis of two of his earlier works on economic inequality namely his essay on The Sweatshop Sublime and his book on Upward Mobility. And so I want to talk a little bit about those two works and how I think they're feeding into this one. So in this reading, The Sweatshop Sublime essay sets up the question that the subsequent two works will explore, namely what happens when we think about economic inequality. It's easy enough not to think about inequality, of course, um, particularly about inequality on a global scale, about the distant workers who produce the goods that we and our bourgeois lives consume. What interests Bruce are the moments where awareness breaks through, however partially, however briefly. And he finds one paradigmatic case, those of you who have read this essay will recall, in a passage by David Lodge, who's imagining a housewife putting on water for tea. And the housewife has no awareness of all that was required to recover the fuel and produce the power, much less grow and transport the tea. She simply pours the water when it boils and drinks it. But Lodge, of course, does see what his imagined housewife cannot, and what he sees is the sudden laying bare of labor and trade that Bruce calls the sweatshop sublime. The sweatshop sublime produces a feeling of vertigo, insofar as we imagine ourselves as a single node in a vast and ever-ramifying network of connections, we will feel insignificant, impotent. But insofar as we imagine the network as an organizing around us to satisfy even our most trivial desires, as if we were an emperor receiving tribute from distant realms, we feel omnipotent. And so we oscillate between omnipotence and impotence, and we are dizzy. So the sweatshop sublime impedes action. That's the point that's made in the second example that Bruce gives us, 
the bra's chest cartoon about getting dressed in the morning. And that cartoon, you'll recall, estranges the familiar act of putting on a shirt by rendering it as a flowchart. You pick up the shirt and then choose either to look or not look at the label. If you look at the label, you will then face a number of discoveries. It either was or was not made in America by workers who either were or were not paid three cents an hour, and a number of speculations, workers who either do or do not hate your stupid Yankee guts. But none of these choices matter, nor any of these discoveries or speculations, since all the paths in this flowchart lead in the end to the same final box. You put on the shirt, and you go about your day, no different for all your discoveries from the housewife who ignorantly drinks her tea. So the Sweatshop Sublime essay then frames a problem of economic inequality and identifies a failure of action. The Upward Mobility book proposes, I think, a solution. And the solution is the welfare state. Bruce defends the welfare state against critics on both the left and the right, arguing that it effectively narrowed the gap between the advantaged and the disadvantaged by redistributing both the benefits of capitalism and the costs. But argument Bruce knows is not enough. For if rising numbers of critics pose a threat to the welfare state, a far greater threat is posed by the near total lack of defenders. No one loves the welfare state, Bruce Riley admits. Even those who benefit from it most find it compromised, inadequate, dowdy, passe. What is needed then is a way of activating loyalty, allegiance, even love, and there is no one better equipped to find such a way than Bruce. For while Bruce can argue with the best of them, there's another thing he can do that none of the rest of them even try, which is to descend from the abstractions of political theory into the muck and the mess of how we actually engage with the world, that mix of feelings and convictions, impulses and reflexes interwoven by narratives and art that aren't even organized enough to count as structures of feeling that are political only halfway to consciousness. It's in that muck and that mess, which Bruce accesses most commonly through his pellucid readings, that new political possibilities can be found. And so in the Upward Mobility book, what Bruce finds in the muck and the mess is the figure of the benefactor. The benefactor might be figured in some novels as a glamorous older woman instructing the provincial parvenu on the ways of the city or as a convict returned from Australia buying himself an English gentleman, or as a serial killer giving career advice to an ambitious young FBI agent, or as, a little more doubtily, the health visitor who ensures that growing children get the vitamins they need. In the figure of the benefactor, Bruce finds a plausible program for reducing inequality. For what the benefactor feels toward the beneficiary in the Upward Mobility book, it's going to be different soon, um, is a kind of non-binding emotional investment that is often figured as non-marital sexual desire. And what the benefactor provides the beneficiary is both absolutely transforming, creating an entirely different life, but also quite modest and well within the bounds of what can be given without much sacrifice. Some money, some advice, a glass of orange juice. And what the beneficiary feels in return to the benefactor is a measured degree of gratitude, one that often produces a not overly pressing sense of obligation to one day do the same in turn. So with these earlier texts in mind, I'd like to suggest that what Bruce is doing in this new book is applying the solutions developed in the Upward Mobility book to the problem described in the Sweatshot Sublime essay. This is true on the level of policy. 
um, Bruce suggests toward the end of the beneficiary that the solution to global inequality might well be a transnational version of the welfare state. There is, after all, a clear historical logic to this. All efforts to remedy inequality begin locally and then grew to encompass more and more people from the family, then the neighborhood, then the members of the guild. We learn to care for people more and more distant from us. The process could well continue from the welfare state to something like the European Union, although reconceived for Bruce, to something like a much more empowered United Nations. There's also a theoretical logic to this idea. Since it was the welfare state, Bruce argues, that reinforced the idea that persons should be insulated from the ups and downs of the markets, that no one's life should be entirely shaped by capitalism. It is therefore from the welfare state that we will learn how to further limit capitalism on the global scale. But Bruce is also applying the solutions from the Upward Mobility book in another way as well. He's reconceptualizing the figure of the benefactor and training his analytical powers on what he calls the discourse of the beneficiary. So that's the muck and the mess of this book. And what he finds, as in all of his best work, are things we never would have expected. He finds, for instance, new political affects, some of which he do, deems less useful, like asceticism or a kind of um, performative self-sacrifice, others for which he has rather more time. Among these more positive affects are the love of pleasure that Naomi Klein professes openly, what's wrong with having a good time, she asks, and the anxiety that she would assuage, but Bruce feels we would all do better to cultivate about our position in an unequal world. Bruce also finds unexpected allies, among them a misogyny that prompted observers to recognize commodity relations, even as they sought to blame those relations exclusively on greedy women. There's a long tradition of writing blaming uh, excessive consumption solely on women. And another ally is nationalism. And another is mobilization for war, which alone, he points out, has prompted citizens to reduce their consumption. And the best ally of all might be capitalism itself, which taught people, which taught some activists how to boycott and now teaches Naomi Klein how to brand her activism. It's an uncomfortable, somewhat distasteful mix, this discourse of the beneficiary, and I'm still trying to figure out what it all adds up to, how we're going to act on this. Global inequality is not a problem that admits of easy answers. But if there were easy answers, we wouldn't need a critic as brilliant and idiosyncratic as it's true, as imaginative and astringent as Bruce Robbins. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Bruce Robbins' book, The Beneficiary. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Thomas Dodman's book, What Nostalgia Was, War, Empire, and the Time of a Deadly Emotion. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.